Here I am at Grandma Bowers in Zilla. Took, took the day I'm going to be here trying to interview her, but she won't answer her door. Yeah, ring the doorbell again. I guess I'll, I have a visitor. So I, it's, it's Jared. Oh, tell him hi for me. Hi from Jill. Uh, No, no, Bonnie. George, Ralph. I I already knew, I already knew it was Bonnie before she told me it was Jill. (laughs) I could hear your voice. Well, I have my speaker on. She does. I learned to turn it on. Come in, come in, come in. Hey, okay, Bonnie. I'll talk to you later then. Okay. Bye bye. That is pretty bad. <laughs> How is she? Oh, she's doing okay. She's got what she calls bursitis in the heel, so she's having problem with that. I don't even know what that is. But she's in charge of that event center up there, you know, now. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so she's... Damn, she'd be good at that. really, really busy. Well, Grandma... strong coffee? Oh, yeah, I would like nothing better. Sit down, What are you doing here? I'm recording a conversation with my grandma. Why? Well... There's several reasons why, the biggest one being that uh, you ain't no spring chicken, and if you kick off, somebody's going to wish that somebody oh, recorded but, something. you know, 90 is no big deal anymore. Well, now, have you, yeah, yeah. have you read the I have, yeah. obituaries? Everybody lives way yeah, beyond way there. Way beyond that. <laughs> well, I don't know. It just I know you just got to die of something. I just haven't found it yet. Well, I'm sure if you keep looking. So, um, <laughs> cup There's of coffee. Cup. Can I... I just had a couple of questions, like... Easy ones. They're, yeah, they're pretty simple. How many sisters were there? I have three sisters. Okay. So there's four total. Big pardon? So four Shaw sisters. And what were their names? The older one, Pauline. Mm-hmm. Luella Pauline. Ah, uh, I didn't know that. Wava Louise. Uh-huh. Mary Lou. Uh-huh. And Myla Dean. Your middle name is Dean? <laughs> yeah. It's just attached to the Myla. <laughs> and you guys grew up in Norton? Yes. Okay. And where did you meet Jack? In Norton. Friends of mine I went to school with, went to high school with, and they were married. Well, I went home after I got through with training. I just got home and we were having a big football game in Norton, and uh, they matched me up with Jack. And Jack was out of high school? Oh, yeah. Okay. Jack was, um, he went to school in Utica. Ah, big city. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's a cousin of another classmate of mine. Oh. So, kind of, I knew, I didn't know him, I didn't know of him, but there was that connection there yeah. of friends. What year was this? Must have been about... Fifty-one. So you met Jack. What did you think of Jack? He's good looking. And how did he get you? How did he get you? I don't know. There just wasn't anything else for either one of us, I guess. <laughs> that is the most romantic story I've ever heard. It was, it was real romantic because nothing was going on. Nothing was happening. He didn't have any money. And... So tell me about when he proposed. I just don't 
there just wasn't a, a, actually a proposal. We just started talking about getting married. Okay. All right. All right. It was nothing exciting. Just, we were just living. Okay. And he joined the army after you were married? He was, we were married in June and he was drafted in, I think it was September or October. Okay. He was drafted. He was not drafted during the war, huh. but then when this Korean thing came up, then they drafted him. You got a job at the Norton Hospital. You had Bill. What was Bill like when he was a child? Do you remember? Bill was always more serious. You know, he, he took things seriously. I don't know how to, dis I don't, I don't know. They were just kids. There wasn't anything exceptional about any of them. <laughs> well, occasionally. Well, they were good kids. Yeah. I don't know. And, and they, they had their problems, but just like everybody else, yeah. you know, it wasn't anything, no big deal. Jack and Myla Dean had several children. Bill was their oldest, and that's my father, Bill Bauer. He married Leslie German. We're going to be focusing on Bill Bauer and Bill's youngest siblings. Bill and Leslie met at Zilla High School. Bill was not a Christian at the time he met Leslie. Leslie converted him to Christianity, and they got married right out of high school. Leslie finished her dental hygienist degree in Yakima, while Bill worked at Pay and Pack. After they were married... They attended a Bible school in Yakima and then went to Fresno to be part of a church plant. While they were in Fresno, they were notified that Jack Bauer had died in Reno, Nevada. My mom was the oldest of several, and their names in order were Ruth German, who married Larry Wise, Mark German, who died of a brain tumor. Ray German, who lives in Yakima. Lori German, or as I like to call her, Crazy Aunt Lori, who is a pharmacy technician and lives in Zilla. And Lisa German, who married Matt Bauer, my father's youngest brother. And now let's talk to my mom. A lot of Bill's family, it was a very dysfunctional because his father was alcoholic gambler and would come and go in the home back and forth and very disruptive man not anger but um, other issues very very disruptive so we didn't even realize the extent of it until he had passed away and some of the situations started coming out. Uh, but Matt was a very little boy when his dad passed away. When Jack died and we were in California at the time, got the news, Jean, Jean Ann and Gilbert had helped Milo Dean move to Zilla to a smaller home, much more manageable. She still had the children all the kids except Jean and Bill at home, but it was much more manageable. So Bill and I came home 
and we stepped into helping with my Dean asked us to have Bible study and she tried to make it see that everyone that lived at the house had to come. I can't remember how well that worked, but I know that Jill and Bonnie had an encounter with the Lord and um, I can't say for Greg and JD, it doesn't seem like it because of what's gone on, but with Matt, yes, Bill was kind of old enough that Matt looked to him a lot to grow and mature and just have encouragement. I wouldn't say I was too much in the picture with the family, really. I was Bill's wife, but you know, it was mainly him with relating to his siblings and bringing the truth of God that made it change in their home. As each one surrendered their life to the Lord, then that changed the atmosphere. If you've got your Bibles, uh, and I hope you do, let's turn to, I just wanted to share a brief scripture before we continue this morning in Psalms 145, starting with verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and the glory of the majesty of thy kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endures to all generations. To all generations. That's one of the things that the Lord's been speaking to us a lot about dominion living and kingdom living, about God's dominion coming in every area of life, absolutely every area of life absolutely every area of life and I don't care what the Supreme Court says about separation of church and state but the kingdom of God and his dominion coming to absolutely every area of life that is God's way and God's desire and his will for the people that he has created and he has created all peoples Kevin, come and continue to lead us in worship as we respond to the Lord this morning. Stand with me one more time. There's one more song I'd like to sing before I turn it over to Bill. This is an old recording from 1985. The man you hear speaking is Don Chisholm. He's a pastor of Village Assembly of God. share the word of the Lord this morning. This is the oldest recording I have of my dad. Open your Bibles to Psalms, please. Psalms 
Psalms 11. In the late 80s, Bill took over as lead pastor of Village Assembly. Uh, Leslie's parents have a habit of when they get away, they have so much fun that they always want to stay an extra day. And I told Leslie that if that happened this time, that I was going to come and get her. Phone rang Friday night, and I answered the phone, and Leslie said, come and get me. <laughs> Appreciate Kevin talking about beginning to see the kingdom. Um, that's distinctive from being saved. Salvation is a free gift from God. It's a gift. It can't be, well, I don't know about that. But it's a gift from God. But when you begin to see the kingdom, and you begin to see how it works and functions, and you begin to embrace that in your life, it's exciting. I mean, it's exciting thing to have happen to you. I see it. I see the kingdom. But I don't think anything has got me in more trouble in my life than seeing the kingdom. I say that as a preface because I think I'm going to get myself in trouble again today. Here's Jody Smith. How you doing? Good. Um, 1998. You were on the leadership team at Valley Assembly of God. Was it called Valley Assembly of God, actually? Valley We'd Covenant left. Community by then. Who was the leadership team at the so church? The leadership team, they considered it a wagon wheel model. Okay. Is, is the structural. The structural model was a wagon yeah. wheel. Well, who was at the center? Your dad. Bill and, and Leslie. Leslie. Okay. Yeah. And then Randy and I and Matt and Lisa were like... Spokes? One tier out. Oh, okay. The, like another round brace and then uh, an additional so we were considered core one then there was core two Ruth and Larry Wise Candace and Ruben Rios Holy and Jessica Johnson I think that was it okay alright I'm gonna go talk to my uncle Larry see if he's available um, I understand that well, I mean, Candace just told me that Larry was available, so I'm going to pop over there. Hey, Jared. Hey, guys. Well, Jared. hey, stranger. You guys taking lunch? Well, you're going to take us all out for lunch? God, what a nice guy. Dang, squeeze in is open, you know. I got terrible news. I have one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. Uh, what are you doing over here? Then? Figured we could pass. <laughs> You're asking us for a dollar. Well, I heard. Uh, I honestly thought I'd catch you guys eating. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, I love honesty. I love honesty. What time is it? Twelve thirty. Twelve thirty. You guys want to go eat or something or what? I was just gonna check to see where we're. Jared well, said he'd take us out. Yeah, those were my exact words. <laughs> You take it, but you gotta pay. You gotta. <laughs> um, I'm basically poking around trying to find out some old stuff. So, um, looking into all the stuff that went on with Dad, um, I basically started poking around and hunting people down that were there, and I finally did it. 
Peggy planned a dinner for tonight. I should interject. Yeah. Yeah, we, but we can. But can you we can it? just all come over here and meet at six o'clock and eat too, That's just for the fun right. of it. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's do that. Instead of just her and Peggy, we could all but, do that. Yeah. It was supposed to be for all six of us because oh. you guys are working. Well, if you want to go sit down, and, and it was my idea. Suck a little bit. Was and, your uh, idea? If you want these guys or whatever. Well, he yeah. didn't need me. I wasn't there. Don't know nothing. It'll still be nice to have you around. Yeah, I know. So, I miss you. Let's go sit on yeah, the Every time starts yeah. talking about him, I start getting upset. Well, if you're not comfortable, you, Richard, then don't worry about it. I'm going to go home and help Peggy make green beans. Okay. I would like to visit with you someday just for the fun. Oh, yeah. Well, I hear you're retired now, so. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Richard. Anyhow, yeah. But, yeah, I'll get out of here and get out of you guys' Let's way. Me, let's go sit on Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, sorry, Rich. Or sorry, uh, Larry. I drove Rich off. It's just part of your personality uh, that we've accepted. That's yeah, okay. who, who I am, Richard. <laughs> you show up and you get upset. People start leaving. Well, for for myself, you know, I mean, your your dad, for the most part, had a very, you know, people knew him from when they first moved here. Had a very good reputation, especially after he became pastor. I mean, my my dad told me, I mean, we're down in California and stuff, but my dad told me that your your, your dad, Bill, has a town just a buzzing. I mean, he's chauffeuring around. Norm Brown. Brown. Why in the world is Norm driving Bill around or Bill driving Norm around. Well, they had the two same kind of cars in the same color, you know. So Bill go, hey, well, let's go have coffee, you know. And so he's driving. The next time, well, Norm, come on. I'll take you down for coffee, you know. And so, why is Norm Brown driving Bill around, you know. Yeah. He yeah. said that, that was just a coffee shop, you know. I don't understand. Do do I mean, why is Norm Brown chauffeuring this pastor around? <laughs> He, your dad did have a very good reputation. He had a uh, very good ministry of love. Uh, he was very intelligent. Knew how to talk to people mostly by listening. A lot of times people in his so-called position, they like to talk to people, but they don't really want to listen. I remember Bill one time we met down in the basement over at the house and and I said, you know, you have these guys come in almost every morning, early in the morning, you guys sit down here by the fire and and drink coffee and talk and pray and, you know, whatever it is. And he goes, mostly I listen. They just need to get something off their chest. Whether you agree with it or not, give that person a time to either vent or share then you can talk to him. Your dad would listen. I mean, he did it to me. I mean, for me. But he would listen. Let you kind of... Okay, well, have you thought about maybe you need to change a few things you're doing, Ruben? Yeah. And instead of getting a reaction, he get, well, what do you mean? Then right, yeah. you, you go on to the next step. Uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's the thing... Uh, People in the church at the time, I mean, because we were family, we lived on the same property, uh, we grew up together and all that, uh, assumed that we knew mostly what your mom and dad and 
family and, and, and stuff was doing or thinking and all that. And I could say probably at least 60% of the time we did because they communicated. Candace Rios is part of a group of friends called the Little Friends. And they consisted of Richard Globitz, his wife Peggy Globitz, Ruben Rios, his wife Candace Rios, Larry Wise, and his wife Ruth Wise. These little friends lived life together, and they savored it together. They would go camping, and they would visit each other's children, and they would play cards, and they would help each other with projects. And that is their life. They help each other. Candace Rios was also one of my father's secretaries. Here is Candace Rios. We heard such truth the first Sunday we came, and I know it's a silly term to say we were church shopping, but that was the first church, the first Sunday that we went to, and we thought, well, let's just try this this church here. And it was just a random choice. We didn't know anybody there. <laughs> Russian roulette. Yeah, it was, uh, this one. And, uh, which is odd, because it's back in the corner. Uh -huh. You know, you don't hard even to see find, it. Hard to find, yeah. Yeah, hard to find. And we came home that first Sunday, and Reuben said, Oh, he said, I've never heard what, I've, I've never heard this before. And then we'd go back the second Sunday and we'd come home and he'd go, I've never heard this before. We'd been in church, we hadn't been in church a lot of years. We'd been, been out in Buana and a little bit in Methodist and Taubanese. We were hearing things that were truth, that were common sense, but we had never heard them in a church before. And uh, a son not being a son, a son being a son and not being a slave when you go into a workplace. That blew me away. So Ruben and I would come home and we'd have these conversations and it was like, oh gosh, it's Sunday. We've got to wait all this time till Sunday comes around again. He captured our hearts the first Sunday. It was like, oh my God. Bill just didn't get up and preach. Bill was telling a story. Let's listen to Bill Bauer in his own words. You have to forgive the recording on this. It is a bit rough. Secrets bind hearts. Uh, I, uh, this principle came home to me when I was a young boy. I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I was in, invited to be a candle lighter at a wedding. And I was born and raised in Kansas. Actually, I'm not a native of uh, Washington State. And uh, <clears throat> I had a cousin that was my same age, and he was invited to do the same thing. And it was our job to go in at the front of the wedding procession and, and light the candles on each side. Don't ever ask. 12-year-old boys to do that. Oh, don't do that. But somebody was foolish and they asked us to. And they bought us these matching uh, sport coats, first ones we'd ever owned. And they had this nifty little pocket inside of them. Man, it was cool. Uh, it was a long time ago, guys, you know. And uh, <clears throat> before the wedding started, they gave us candles that we were using, these long things. And we figured out you could slide that Hummer in there and just kind of tuck it, and it was right in that special pocket that uh, 
was in our new jacket, and we were so proud of our candle in our pocket, 12 years old. <clears throat> well, in the course of time, I got thirsty, so they had one of these water coolers where you, you go up and you hit the little button and you, you, know, you get a drink of water. And when I hit that button and leaned over, that candle was in my pocket, and it snapped just as I leaned over because it hit that thing. Man, I straightened up. Forget about the drink of water. I went over and I just, I just sat down by the wall. I had been in trouble so much my whole life in this. And I was sitting there, little beads of sweat coming out. And I was watching my cousin. He walked over to the water cooler. And he leaned over. And he straightened up real quick. And he came over and he sat right beside me. I said, did it break? And he said, right in two. <laughs> I said, well, what should we do? He said, I don't know. I said, well, shouldn't we tell somebody? He said, I ain't telling nobody. <laughs> Twelve years old. We sat there, waited, and finally the time came for the wedding to start. And they brought us up to the front of the line and there was a church lady there. Every church has a church lady. <laughs> and uh, she said, all right, fellas, it's time to get the candles out. Let's go. Where are they? Did you lose them? No, we didn't lose them. Well, let's get them out. So we reached in our pocket and saw a candle. <laughs> and this lady gasped. You know. She grabbed them away from it and she disappeared. And we knew we were in big trouble, big trouble. And she went back in the recesses of this church somewhere, and she came back, and she had two brand-new candles, and she gave one to my cousin, one to me, and we went through the whole thing, no problem. But we knew, just knew that the shoe was going to drop, you know. But you know what? She never told anybody. Church lady. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. She never told anybody. As far as I know, she took that secret to her grave. And do you know what? It endeared a little 12-year-old heart to her for all time. I, that is one of the people I want to meet when I get to heaven, is that little church lady that never told anybody. And our hearts were bound together. You see, secrets bind hearts. Here's my Aunt Ruth. I went into her house with this recording, and in the background you can hear her grandkids and her daughter. Well, I don't know when it really started. I knew it for the first time when we walked over to your mom and dad's when we had something come up in our life, and that was about two weeks before family camp, or even a week before family camp. It was right... Uh, so what year would that have been? And the month was June. So that's the first time I noticed it, is that we'd be in the living room. You know, we'd been together a million times before. This was different. That's when I noticed it. He was like across the room, and I mean across the room. 
and he was trying to relate to us as we were sharing, you know, and things like that. And we had the, a kind of relationship where we could show up and there was no pre preamble or making yourself comfortable or whatever, you know. We had all been together since we were in our teens. And so we could start wherever in a conversation and it was not remarkable. But that day was different. So that was the first day I noticed it. All right, this is this is Candace Rios. She's talking about the first time she noticed that something was wrong with Bill. Bill was a man who always had other men in his office talking one-on-one. -on -one. They never came in feeling like they had heaviness on their shoulders, but when they left, you could see a difference, seriously, Jerry, you could see a difference on them. It's like Bill spoke truth to them, and I think a lot of it was people loved Bill. They loved his, his humor, his wisdom, his insight, his, his, uh, the way he would speak of God. I saw him doing that, and it would bless me tremendously, because I believe that men need to speak to men. But then there came that little shift and in that shift was uh, Randy and Jody were part of the, whatever that group was that was around your dad, I don't remember what they call it now, and Matt and Lisa. And in my sight, this is only my perspective of it, Bill began to lose, uh, I will just call it the joy of life. Bill took a turn somewhere. Don't know what it was. Couldn't put my finger on it, but Bill took a turn. I'm just going to say this. In my eyes, it seemed like Bill wasn't as confident in himself as he had been previously. I think Bill had a heart for men who were broken. That's, that's how I see it. Personally, I began to see a change in Bill where he didn't have the confidence that he had before. It, uh, he would still be joyful, he would still be polite, but there was definitely a, a change that you could see. And then just kind of out of nowhere, Jared, it's like, and I don't even know how to say it, it's hard to even say it, because I can't give you an example, but it's like he began to look over his shoulder. I know that just sounds vague and I, you just throw it out there, but that's the perspective that I got, that he began looking over his shoulder. And then in my perspective, perspective of all this, it all happened so fast, but it's like people begin to come in and make decisions for Bill. Uh, he wasn't the decision maker. Randy would meet with them and, and uh, Randy and Jody and maybe Randy and Matt would come in and they would speak to him behind closed doors. I never knew what was being said or knew what was going on. But it was like uh, they were instructing Bill on matters. I'll just say matters. And, and then he took a turn and started doing bizarre things that we had never seen Bill do before. And Ruben and I discussed it on and off and it was like Bill no longer could make a decision. It's like the, the core of four people came in and instructed Bill how to make decisions. That, that whole thing of when they began to meet him in the office and speak to him, 
it was like what he was saying wasn't the last word. They had to instruct him as to what was going on. I never saw him that way before, but he looked baffled to me at times in the office when they would come in and, and speak to him behind closed doors and when they'd leave, I'd see him sit at his desk and he'd just sit with, but with his head down, maybe he was thinking or going back over what they had just said and what they had just talked about. I mean, I know he's human and we know he had faults, but yet the one thing that spoke to us about your dad was the fact that what he spoke of in his sermon titles were so true. He walked those things out. He talked about being in the cave in one of his sermons, and, and you've got to come out of that cave. You can't stay in that cave. That was a sermon on a Sunday morning, and that sermon always came back to me because at that point, I believe Bill had started to recede back into this darkness of a cave. I think he was talking to the congregation of his what was happening personally with him. And a lot, maybe I didn't have that insight back then, but when you go back and you think about what he was saying, I don't know what, I don't know what happened. It's like Bill was no longer Bill. It's, it's your, your mom, Randy, Jody, uh, Matt, and Lisa uh, surrounded him. And I don't know if this was good. Reuben and I say we didn't think it was good, but that's just our personal opinion. But they surrounded him, and uh, we got a call one night, Reuben and I did, in the middle of the night, we were living in, Zill in town, and Randy said, can you come out and sit with the kids? Something's happened, and we've got to get over to Bill and Leslie's. So we ran over there, and the, both the kids were in bed. They didn't even get up. We just sat in the living room and prayed <clears throat> while they were gone. We were never informed as to why they had to rush over there. I was never informed as to did things get worked out, which is fine. We weren't part of the problems. We didn't need to be involved in it. <clears throat> we just called on to watch the kids. But those things were happening. Some of the older couples in the church were feeling that they were being left out as to what's going on with Pastor Bill. What's happening? Why are people not talking about it? Uh, why is everything becoming a big secret? Why is it that they've got Bill in the office and they're chatting with him all the time? And why weren't we, as part of the body, able to know so that we might not have been able to help? <clears throat> and it wasn't a matter of we want to know because this is... Uh, we could, maybe we could have prayed. Maybe we could have done something, you know. But the congregation was totally separated from those four people, your mom being the fifth person, those five people and what was going on with your dad. All right, now here's my Aunt Ruth again. Malcolm talked to, your, talked to Larry and I about Bill at that time because he knew that we'd been close for many years, well, since we were teenagers, you know, and he noticed some things that were happening and Malcolm doesn't have the best perspective on everything, but he reads people real well. And he said that he was concerned about Billy, felt like he was having, uh, I would say, depression. I think that's the way Malcolm explained it, was he was seeing signs of depression, burnout, things like that. 
So that was before family camp. That would have been in June. And then we went to family camp, and he wouldn't come in our cabin. He wouldn't engage with a lot of people. When he started going through the depression, and um, there was a disconnect from reality to a certain degree. I mean, when you talk to him, you know, he could answer you and stuff, but he looked like he was fighting to find the words to say to you, or that there was so much interference going on. I can't explain it any other way. It was definitely a serious thing, and he did have a doctor's appointment to go, but he never did make it there. So um, the year, New Year actually came, um, and went, and we uh, we had a, a school going, and that would have been in 1998. That would that would have been uh, kind of the back half of the school year, mm-hmm. and you were teaching at the school at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, about when did you notice that Bill was some of Bill's behavior was a little bit different? Well, the first that I was made aware of it was your uncle, Matt, and your dad had taken a trip to Spokane. They had to file some paperwork, or they were... um, Some paperwork was was involved, and they needed to go to Spokane for that. And um, Matt came to our home after they got back from Spokane, and he was visibly upset and asked to speak with us away from our family our kids. And so we went out on the canal bank and it was warm. So it was at least spring. Um, and he described coming home from Spokane that, um, your dad had fixated on a car on a red Honda, uh, Accord that was on the freeway and wanted to follow it. I think they did follow it, and he was convinced that they needed to follow that car, that that car had significance that they needed. And uh, Matt was really troubled by... He couldn't convince your dad not to. He, There was no... Um, couldn't make sense of it. And um, he eventually did convince your dad to go ahead and, and come home. And, um, but he was really bothered by that. And nothing like that. Your dad never did anything like that. He would, I mean, I could see him doing that as a joke to, to totally, you know, tie Matt up in knots. I could, you know, that would make much more sense. And dad's jokes never lasted beyond yeah, yeah. 15 minutes yeah. tops. And he would have got a good laugh as soon as he saw the look on Matt's face of total, what? He, he would have, you know, started laughing. And um, your dad was always a very sound mind, very, he was a critical thinker. He was visionary. He um, was motivating, inspirational, um, transparent. He was very transparent. He, he, uh, he, he, he just 
cared for people in a way that I hadn't seen before and that uh, he, he was a very sound mind. And so I almost, I, I didn't really understand what Matt was describing. I couldn't, you know, place it. Um, but he was so visibly upset that we knew something was going on. And um, so I don't remember what the exact next step was, but we discussed it. Well, we actually were observing. We observed for a while. And there was some things that just weren't adding up. And so we um, talked to your mom. I can remember being very, um, I don't want to, have to ask her about this you know this is a weird conversation to have and your mom was just very factual and very um she goes yes there I'm not sure what's going on there's definitely some some changes in and he's fixating on things and and uh I just remember she was very she wasn't emotionally, she wasn't distraught, she wasn't stressed out, but she was concerned and she had, had noticed changes. Um, and it, they accelerated very fast. Um, he confessed things. He was trying to convince us he knew he was not thinking correctly. And he um, was trying to convince us just how badly his mind was going. And he, you know, we would try and say, um, you know, you need more sleep or it's a spiritual attack or... Um, you know, just trying to support him, you know, food, you know, how, what kind of diet, that kind of stuff, because it, it was just, it came out of, you know, left field. And um, he's like, no, it's been, it's been happening for a while. And he would confess things that had been going on that we had no idea. And some that, I'm like, that's not even true. That's not Bill. Like, he confessed to, getting on the church computer for pornography. There's no way. I mean, your dad was so... Um, he called men up to a standard, and he held that standard. So um, it was almost like he, he left a trail for us to see of, of, of behaviors he knew were odd um, as almost as a clue, rather than because he was driven to do those things. It was like he was trying to show us, no, this, there's really something going on in my brain that I don't understand, and I need you to pay attention. Um, that's Can how. Can you give me any other examples, uh, specifically the fixation stuff? Um, so I, I taught at the school. I did. I was head of children's ministries, um, I did all the visual art type stuff for the, for the church and the school. And I didn't 
take payment. I mean, none of us did. We just served. Um, but your dad was uh, got fixated on. I I, w- I wish we could pay you. I you. I need to do things to reciprocate. So uh, one night, uh, he, my husband and I had been cutting down a dead tree on our property, and it took the whole day to get it down so that it didn't hit the house. We, you know, it, it was the whole Saturday to get it down. The next morning, um, we, we, cut, we got it down and we cut it in lengths. The next morning, it was stacked, split and stacked. A, tr- a whole tree and your dad had come over in the middle of the night to our house and he had seen us he had they had driven by or um, we were doing w- once he started into this odd behavior that we weren't quite sure what was going on we made a decision that someone would always be with him huh. so if your mom couldn't be Matt Wood or Randy or myself or something so he he was with us the day that it was hap- that we were taking the tree down for some reason or another, and um, so he was aware that it had come down and that it had taken us all day to get that much done. Um, and he had come in the middle of the night and he had split it and stacked it all to you know kind of repay me for some of uh, the work I did. Another time he came in the middle of the night again. We had a. a I wanted to make a brick path through a, a flower bed in our yard. And um, we had gotten the bricks from the building that we had talked about having our church in, in the, uh, the old train uh, depot in Zilla. And so we had a pallet of bricks. We just hadn't got to it yet. There were trees and uh, tree roots in the way. So we were. I, mean, I was trying to kind of figure that out. In the middle, I woke up the next morning. There it was. The brick pathway was done. He had planned it, made a way, laid it. I came out and uh, there he was finishing up the last few bricks. You know, so he was just, he got this idea. And his, I mean, I had worked for the church for uh, five years at that point. And, you know, it was just, we all chipped in and we all served. And um, But for some reason, that's one of the things that he um, fixated on was there, I needed to receive some kind of payment in return, and so he would he would do those things. Like you guys didn't hear him splitting wood outside. I know, I know. It was a very odd feeling to come out and know someone had been at your home oh. all night, and and you who, hadn't noticed. Who, are you aware of him doing anything else like this for people? I don't remember him serving. You know, like that. Um, he he was fixated multiple times with the red car, um, and we we went to Maple Valley early on in the process. Um, early in his degeneration, you mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So sometime in the spring. Yeah. Um, well, probably summer because it was a tent. They they were having a tent revival. So maybe May. Okay. Uh, um, there in Maple Valley, we went over to uh, I can't even remember their names. The Easterlies. Easterlies, thank you. And um, so, Pastor Easterly is 
what at that time was the pastor of the church at, at Maple Valley. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we had talked, we tried to talk to several key people to, we were trying to discern what was going on because it was just so, it was just, you know, like a light switch uh, flipping on uh, the change in your dad. And so we went to Maple Valley, we stayed with them and then went to this tent meeting and prayed for your dad and then uh, well, I can think it was Doug, Doug's dad, uh, Mr. Pastor Easterly, spent some time counseling and praying with your dad to see if he could discern what was going on. And in the middle of the night, your dad got up and was convinced that there was a red car he had to follow. And so when the rest of us woke up, he was nowhere to be found. And uh, he, he did this multiple enough that we weren't worried that he wouldn't come back we knew he would end up finally realizing wait a minute i don't why how did i get out here why am i out here so you come back to his senses yeah he would and, and he would call and then he would call yeah and we would go pick him up i see so he would like what go walking mm-hmm. yeah he walked miles my he walked rode his bike, what, whatever was, hand, because I think that we had taken the keys from him at, at a certain point. We had taken vehicle keys so that okay, he so could. At some point you took away his vehicle keys. This was yeah. in May? Well. Um, Between, like in the course of one month he took his vehicle keys away? We We did. We... Because he would go on these tangents and uh, he rode his bike, you know, the night before he died, he rode his bike to Vantage, to an orchard in Vantage. Um, he would walk uh, in Maple Valley. It was, uh, the Easterlies couldn't believe when he described where he was for us to come pick him up, how far he had gotten. Even if he had, you know, they were talking through, if he had left it, as soon as we all went to bed and, and walked until now. He, he shouldn't have been able to get that far. You know, he just, so he, not only was he walking, but he was probably speed walking, you know, to, yeah. or running. But, um, so multiple times he got fixated with a red vehicle and, and he, con- he connected it to a betrayer. The betrayer has a red vehicle. And maybe he wanted to solve what, why someone was betraying him or, we, we never could fully put it together. Um, we, we owned a red Honda, and he would refer to it, but then he would also say, but you're not the betrayer, you know, kind of a thing. So it was like we weren't, it didn't add up. In July, we took him to Marble for the 4th of July um, celebration, hoping also to have some kind of a understanding about what was going on. Um, and so I drove the truck and trailer. I have several accounts of Marble uh-huh. and the Marble experience, so I'm going to get to that one. Okay. But before we jump, jump that far, I, I kind of need to know, I would like to have three examples of things, if you follow me. So you fixated on the red car, 
a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, did you meet with any other leadership like the Trouts or any anybody? Because I know that they had withdrawn, like Bill and Leslie had withdrawn from the Trouts a little bit as leaders. And I know the reasons for that had to do with Norm's plagiarism and uh, Dennis's reluctance to confront him about it. And, and Matt's and Bill's conclusion, especially Bill's conclusion that um, that Norm was not accountable to his elder board. Mm-hmm. So at the time, we were um, mostly uh, connected with Marvel for uh, covering, and um, so we. I, I don't remember any other. So, so the course of events that I remember, when. Bill could articulate what he was, what was going on in his mind, and and that he was not doing things. He was doing things he knew he shouldn't do, and he didn't understand it. So how did how did he and how did he know he was doing things he shouldn't do? Because I, people will say things like that to me about my dad, but then they never tell me a story about the conversation where he articulated that. And so what's getting murky and muddy, especially in conversations with my mom was she would make assertions that were exactly like that and then kind of go off on what dad really is and never like, okay, we were sitting in a conversation and, and he was self-aware and here's some, here's how the conversation went. I mean, I'm not asking for he said, she said, I'm just, I, you pick him up, you bring him home, you had a meeting? Is that what happened? Like, can you, can you talk uh-huh. me through that? Uh-huh. So, um, at first we observed, we didn't talk with him specifically about it. Um, and then when I think all of us had kind of seen it. And so this wasn't just somebody reading something into it kind of a thing. Um, then we did, we talked with your mom and we talked with your dad and he was, he, he was also initiating the conversation. He wasn't hiding it. He was, um, saying like like I said Bill what are you doing when he did the brook pathway Bill what what are you doing where have you been here all night you know so he, goes, he was there when you walked out yeah he was still there he was putting the last few bricks in and you know he would just say I know I know I I tried not to come I did I had to come I had to make this right I, here is a way that I can repay you for what you're doing here. I saw it and I'm like, I have to do it. So it's done and I'll leave now. Please forgive me for intruding on your space and, and, you know, causing you unease that uh, please forgive me. That's that, but I had to do it. You know, that would kind of be a conversation. And, um, when he, when he talked about the pornography at, at the church, he had told Matt and Randy and then they had brought your mom and, and Lisa and I in and said this, you know, he's saying that this is what's going on. And um, and he would he would say it was on the church computer. When I was here by myself, I got on the church computer and looked at pornography. You know, so it was almost like he was he had done it specifically. So we would say, oh, my word, that crossed the line. You got on the church's computer 
you know, you can't do that here. This is a place of God. You know, it's almost like he purposely did it so that we would have to draw a line and, and confront him and, and bring a sanction. Um, he, a day that I remember very vividly is the day that he cut his knee with the chainsaw at your house. And he, so he had stitches and he was, uh, he, he, kind of set himself up that I can't I've cut trees all my life I know how to do this and yet here I am cutting myself what's wrong with me I'm not who I was I can't do what I used to do I, I'm you have to you have to institutionalize me or get rid of me I have to go away I can't be trusted to do what I've always done and I don't know if you remember him including you in that conversation and you speaking truth and saying, no, Dad, you are my dad. You are still the man who's raised me and invested in, you know, and you just spoke truth back at him. Um, but he would, he would be very aware of what he was doing and very driven, very um, like he couldn't help himself. Manic. Yeah. Yeah. We did not even, none of us had dealt with someone who was manic before, so we didn't connect those dots at all. And because it came just so completely out of the blue, and it felt, you know, we had just started the school. It was the coming to the end of the first year of the school, so we had pushed through, and all the warfare at the beginning of the school year you know, our building, having to have it out in the lawn, you know, just there were so many obstacles at the beginning of the year. Some of us were like, okay, is that, does it have to do with, here we go, we've, we're, we're, we're finishing our year, we've, we've broken through, we've been successful, you know, is Satan trying to just take this out? Um, we had had Corinne, we, you know, there was just, so much that had gone on that we thought Satan is just after us. So the devil's out to get us. Yeah, that he's he's wanting to shut this down. Is that what's going on? And so that's why we went to the Easterlies and why we went to Barry and Ann. Um, you know, speak into this. Wrestle through this with us. What is going on? The men sat down with the, oh, what was the committee called? Pastoral Advisory Committee. Pastoral Advisory Committee. Because we decided your dad was still hearing God and he had one of his most powerful sermons ever in it, in the midst of this. I don't know if you remember, it's called uh, Calling You Out of the Tomb, Calling Me Out of the Tomb. And he, he was talking about feeling death all around him and feeling spiritual death and his flesh raging and his spirit not overcoming and feeling like he was in a tomb and, and Christ standing outside that tomb and calling him to life. It was a powerful, powerful sermon. So um, he did. He wasn't trying to hide anything. He was wrestling, God, what is going on? What are you trying to say? What am I battling? 
Okay, so where did those conversations take place? Because if he's manic, he's a manic psycho. He's he's a manic psycho on one hand. When was the lucid moment? Like, like oh, they'd be they, they were just intertwined, all all the time. He never, I mean, for periods of time, he would go manic for, but maybe twenty minutes, maybe an hour. The worst times were at night. You know, your mom woke up many, many times during this season, and your dad was gone. He had gotten up and some uh, some kind of a thought had hit him in the middle of the night that he just fixated on, and he went to figure it out. Sometimes to my house. I don't know all. I you know I don't remember all the places that he went. A lot of times he'd be out in the orchard. It, it he it would so nighttime was the worst. Um, but he would so early on he talked with the pastoral advisory committee. We decided you know he shouldn't be leading he needed to take a sabbatical and pursue healing of whatever that was going to look like well, I think it was, Peggy was supposed to plan this so oh was she yeah so just go home and okay. candles will have it so anyway that's where we could see that there was something major going on your mom and dad came over one time, and Bill wanted to talk to Ruth. And he wouldn't tell me why, so I wouldn't let him. So I wouldn't even let him in the house. So we, we sat outside trying to find out, you know, what is it you want to talk to Ruth? I just need to talk to her about something and, and all this. Again, so out of character. Right. I, I remember it was like an anxious, I need to talk to him. I need to, it, is, it is desperately yeah. important, yeah. kind of this panic. Yep. And then it, when it would come out, it would be, it would be some relatively obscure thing that he felt he needed to repent for. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All of this. Every time I turned around, the guy was repenting to somebody about, about what? And it was ungoverned. Um, it was wild. It was. It was. It but was, that was during that time frame. That crazy. Time. Not prior to. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I, I thought, something needs needs to be done. And he needs to go see a doctor. He needs to go see somebody. Somebody. I mean, don't even have to be go to the hospital or anything, but someone outside. Uh, because as the time went on, it wasn't even like, well, I can fake being okay for this hour. It wasn't. You just kind of like bouncing off the wall. So that was just a major sign that there is something wrong and something needs to be checked out. I struggled with why even your mom wouldn't be insisting, but again, it goes back to that privacy thing and the, you know, if gosh, if they find out that he's going a little bonkers, then that'll be wreck his credibility, and you know, and the reality is, the whole thing wrecked his credibility on the outside looking in. Uh, I don't know anyone. I mean, Ruben and I and. Ruth and Candace and Richard and Peggy and different people there uh, thought any less of your dad during that time than we did before. Just knew there was something wrong. It's just a lack of reality. Yeah, yeah you know, I noticed that as well. There seemed to be... It's just stru- we were struggling with it because... Yeah, there seemed to be a shock. I mean, we were all surprised by his behavior. 
and was so radically out of character and out of the blue. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing that really struck me from from I mean I everybody everybody that was attending the church essentially I couldn't I, sitting here I cannot think of a single person that was attending a church of, of over a hundred at that stage mm-hmm. who like as, as if all of the deposits were there and nothing that Bill did could change their opinion of him right which was shocking well and there were a lot of people who asked us is that a good job or a bad job good yeah. I mean how many how many people could say that yeah there there were a lot of people who came to us Ruth and I wanting to know why aren't they taking Bill to get help uh, to a doctor yeah yeah, yeah. and let me ask you what, what was the time frame that when they asked you that mm-hmm. and the time that you saw the incidents that occurred very short very short okay so there's a time I short, mean I would say less than a month there's a short time span when somebody now is, is saying out loud Bill's got a problem. Why yep. aren't you guys doing something about exactly. it? And then in a short time, boom, it happens. Yep. Why isn't anyone talking? That yep. one of the questions, Gene and Eunice Hopoff, mostly Eunice, Eunice yeah. why isn't anyone talking? Why isn't anyone telling us what's going on? Why is it a secret? It's obvious there's a problem. Yeah. You know. And, I mean, Alexander's and the, the bunch of Johnson's, bunch of the people that were were there all were, were were coming and asking us they were kept in the dark too yeah what what, what you know because they figured well you live next door you're related you're you know and all this stuff you guys ought to know something and we were pretty much kept in the dark as long as every, uh, with everybody else and your mom was part of that too Jerry. Yeah. she was sh- ashamed I think yeah so I she just was, she was scared. Yeah, because uh, yeah, scared the crap out of her. Her future. Well, was I think she change. was scared, but mostly I think it was the being ashamed. Um, so one day, Nancy Myers, who her husband Terry was bipolar, so she had experience with the mantic behaviors. She had been observing Bill and saw the similarities, and she approached Matt said, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't know all that's going on, but I'm seeing these kind of things. These are things that I've experienced with Terry. And they were so similar. So that's when we began really pursuing getting an evaluation by a doctor. Um, your dad was resistant. Not as, I, I wasn't part of those kind of conversations as much. Uh, that was more between your mom and Matt and... Bill, but we did get an appointment arranged. I think we all have the same question. What happened? What happened in that time span with your dad? But I did not see him enough. Jared, they isolated your dad. They isolated him quite a bit from everybody. When I say they, I'm not saying the five, I'm not saying your mom and, and the, the other four are bad people. They were the ones that stepped up to protect your dad when he was doing bizarre things. But he wasn't doing real bizarre things in the beginning, and they were there. So uh, Ruben and I have always kind of said, wonder what's, well, this is, this is a sentiment of the whole church. 
I wonder what's going on. I started to see um, some struggling with him. It just almost like he was tired around our 25th anniversary in October. He just didn't have the same enthusiasm for things. Around Christmas time, he, he was not really necessarily getting any rested. He was discouraged and I couldn't get him to open up about why. It seems sudden to me. He started struggling to me at family camp. That was before. That was in June. Fourth of July. He started struggling with and um, was really concerned, had trouble sleeping, was um, I don't know. I I almost felt like he might be having some symptoms of a nervous breakdown, but he he wasn't mean or hurtful towards anybody or anything like that. Just was struggling with a lot of issues. Wasn't sure that he wanted to pastor anymore. Did he express why he didn't want to pastor anymore? Did he give any explanation as to why he didn't want to pastor anymore? No, and I was hoping that he would you know, open up more. And then, uh, but he didn't really, because it wasn't like he was in a negative place as far as people caring about him and him delivering the word of God with accuracy. The way I recall, there was one victory kind of piled on to another. I mean, there was a ton of momentum in the congregation. There was a sense of unity in the community. Uh, the word of God was preached and looked forward to and hungered for, and people just thoroughly enjoyed mm-hmm. everything that had to do with it. And people who didn't enjoy themselves would leave, and they would leave on good terms. Yeah. So that was happening in June when Malcolm and Judy McGee came down. That That's when I started to sense that he was struggling. He wasn't opening up about what, to me, about what he was affected by. Did you, at that time, believe that it was his di- sudden disinterest of I did, when he lost heart I see. for... And he started to withdraw and lose heart, think that he wasn't good enough for what God was doing and some of those kind of thoughts. Can you can you express some of those kinds of thoughts? Oh. Not really because he wasn't expressing a lot. He was holding a lot in. Can you give me something? Can you can you say that again in a different context? He, he said that he felt like at one point, he said, I wish I had a relationship with the Lord and the Holy Spirit like you have. And he said, I feel like sometimes I'm outside looking in. He said, he felt like sometimes like God was on a, a board, of a CEO of a corporation, and he couldn't relate to him. And yet, he would get 
such wonderful revelation from the Lord up until just a little bit before this. That was like he felt loved by God. So the first time I noticed that something was up with Dad, he pulled me out of high school, and uh, he let me have it with both barrels, kind of out of the blue. Do you remember that? No, because I wasn't there. But I was, cons- I did, there was one other incident where I didn't trust him to take you on like a getaway into to the mountains. I didn't want him to do it because it would be normal and what I would consider normal. And then he would get real concerned for you. Can you describe concerned? What does Worried that- about you. I didn't trust his concerns so I said, no, I don't want you leaving on a camping trip with Jared. It was like April, May? Probably May, June. Um, what was he concerned about with me? He, didn't, he wouldn't articulate that to me. It seems a little isolated to me. Wouldn't you have just normally trusted him in that situation? Because he was acting erratic about what was. He was so worried about you and almost like it was another, you might say, fixation, like you said, with the car. And it was, it was about you kind of zeroing in there. I was not going to let that happen. And if I recall right, I think Reuben and Candace were living nearby then for a few months and they came over I asked them to come and Reuben said no this Leslie doesn't feel comfortable about this and backed me because I didn't know if I could stop it so um, one of the things that keeps coming up is um, that Bill was depressed mm-hmm is yes. that true? Um, in hindsight, I would say that he was he was suffering some depression. Okay. Do you have any idea what triggered that? Um, I'm sure there's a number of things that accumulated. One was we lost Corinne to a car accident with Skyler as the driver. And that was really hard on Bill, too. He was covering Matt and Skyler, and then my dad passed away six months after Corinne passed away. And she, um, her death was so hard on our family. We were just grieving when my dad passed away. Then we were thrust into helping my mom, which we didn't mind doing. But I started taking care of the dental office to keep it running while it went on the market. Um, Bill was covering people's at the church and our family. Um, so that can contribute to things like burnout. So burnout is a possibility? Well, and lots of things are possibility. At this point, I'd be speculating. Mom, you were closest to him. What's your opinion? My opinion was that he was really 
needing a break, a rest. So they were offering the, the committee called the PAC committee. He talked to the PAC committee and they offered him time off and um, that kind of thing. He took some of that and then he didn't preach as much. But it didn't seem to help. Wasn't. I don't know. Help. He he deteriorated. He didn't he didn't seem to get better. He didn't seem to get better. He enjoyed some of the things he was doing though that were different than what he had done for years. So such as he was riding his bike with Dick Milky and he was doing labor kind of things, physical labor around the farm and we had purchased the farm from mom so that she would have an income. I mean, not just us, but other people purchased the properties that she had. She wanted to stay with us as a family. So we made those arrangements and helped that transition to go through. I do remember that quite well, but he was still rather distracted, distant, emotionally unavailable. Oh. Uh, towards me. Less so towards Trenton. What was your experience of, of Bill? My experience of Bill was that he was in distress, but I was helping him the best I knew how. I saw but that. He was yeah. still loving and kind and the things that I recognized about him. Now, I can't interview everyone. Matt and Lisa Bauer are going to come up a lot in this story. But part of what I'm doing, as you'll see at the end, part of what I'm doing is explaining why Matt and Lisa and Leslie and Randy and Jody made the choices that they made. Part, by no means all, but part of what I'm doing is giving you a look into their world. And I'm not involving everyone. I'm just involving some people from each of the spheres, the uh, teams of leadership. Bill and Leslie were right on the nub, right in the middle. And then around them were their core. Randy and Jody Smith and Matt and Lisa Bauer. Randy and Jody functioned as the administrative arm that Bill was trying to move out and delegate administrative responsibilities to. Whereas Matt and Lisa were in charge of the educational arm of the church. Because what had emerged was an entire high school. We initially started out emphasizing homeschooling, which was very avant-garde in the 80s, and in the 90s was still very suspect. Since the internet has come in and permeated our culture, information's easy to get. But back in the 80s and 90s, curriculum around homeschooling and the ability to teach your children effectively was very, very difficult and more than a little scary. People who homeschooled their kids were seen as, at best, delusional, at worst, neglectful or abusive. What Matt 
and Lisa did with Bill and Leslie and the support of the entire community, the entire church really threw themselves into it, was spearheading a church program that was a state-certified high school. This small private high school had people attending that didn't attend the church, but wanted to be a part of, of, a, of a proper high school with a proper curriculum and a state certification. The grand total of individuals attending Zilla Christian High School in the basement of Valley Covenant Community Church was 12. That is, freshmen through seniors, 12 people. I was a senior in 1998. All right, now, here's my Aunt Ruth again. You had Randy and Matt wanting to hide everything from the body, and we had like 125 people then. And Betty and I were in the office at that time. I used to just go in and do the books, and then Betty was the secretary, because we were that big that we needed a secretary. They were talking nonsense about how they had to protect your dad and all this stuff. And, and I'm sitting there and doing the books. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to bring a different perspective. And they both looked at me and I said, these are all people who love Bill. And I said, why don't you just explain what's going on? You know, they know something's going on. Why don't you just explain it? And have everybody pray. You know, and get involved and show support. And, and your dad couldn't take a whole lot of interaction, but they could write notes, you know, they could send cards. It would be a great support to Leslie and the, and you guys, because you obviously knew something was going on, but you didn't know what, uh, what it was. You were kids. And I decided, if they don't do something, I'm going to talk to Larry about it, and we're going to... We're going to do something because this is ridiculous. And, but they did on that Sunday. Your folks didn't come, but they had a meeting and explained, and the sport was wonderful. They explained that he was going through a really hard time, uh, that he was really tired and really, from what they understand, burnt out. They mentioned going to the doctor, uh, that they had an, he had an appointment. And I was very relieved about that. And that there was no moral failing or anything like that. You know, that it was it was just emotional and um, a hard time. And most people have gone through that, so it's not a big surprise. The one thing that I noticed is if he thought he had done anything wrong, he wanted to ask your forgiveness. That wasn't always good. You know, because some of the things that he was thinking that he did were subjective. It might have been a thought he had sometime. Well, sometimes you just have to settle those things with the Lord. Especially in a pastor's role, it kind of stirs things up. I think the hardest thing for me, Jared, was that he looked so haggard and so tired and so just worn out. And I think he was. I think he was just burnt out needed a break, he needed a long rest, but I know lots of pastors that have gone through that. You know, they're dealing with people every day, and that's not an easy role at all.
Right, here's my mom. I was just trying to love him and support him the best I could. I saw you do so. that, yeah. I watched you do that, and it was interesting from my perspective. Um, it was very startling how very affectionate everyone was with him throughout the entire process and throughout his deterioration. There was a, uh, an outstanding demonstration of goodwill Mm-hmm. pointed his direction by every person involved. Uh, Randy, by Jody, by Matt, by Lisa, mm-hmm. and by you, who were yes. most intimate with all of the ins and outs of it. So you're not aware of Bill trying to kill himself? He said that he was tempted at one time okay. to me. Okay. Do you remember... Me gathering the guns up and taking them out of the house. Yes, because I asked you to. Okay, can you tell that story? Well, when he began to be erratic and I didn't want guns at our house, so I asked if I could send them to mom's because they had a safe that they could put him in. And so that's, I did that, yes. And so I did. I, I rounded them up and I took them away. There's no more to the story. I just didn't. Well, you don't, that doesn't usually come out of the blue. Can you tell the story of Dad being tempted at one time? Can you remember That's any of that? All he said was he told me that. Okay. When you're with a person, though, that you're, you know, in connection with, The obvious isn't obvious a lot of times. It's gradual change. It's hard to see. It's hard to see in the beginning. Became real evident in the spring and summer, though, that he was really struggling. When coming back from the 4th of July, I had driven the trailer up. On the way back, they thought Randy and I left early, so we weren't there when everybody left to come home. But we had felt like he had been very, I don't think that he'd gone, done very much manic stuff over 4th of July. I felt, I think all of it, that's where he cut himself. That's, that's where he cut himself and he was walking around with the paper towel that I remember that maybe could be, but so it was decided that I could go ahead and go home with Randy and Bill would drive the truck and trailer home and he would be sandwiched in between Larry and Ruth and Richard and Peggy and they would just keep him between them and they would get home to Zilla. And they pulled into the rest stop and wasn't it Sprague or is that King City? I think it was King City. Well, it might have been Sprague, yeah. Could have been either. And... You had Leslie get out. Yeah, but but everybody was pulling out, and he was kind of there. They they thought that he was in line with them. They didn't go back. Leslie had to call us, clear in Zilla, to come get her. They they didn't realize he wasn't with them or something. I don't know, but he stopped, opened the 
tray to the door, got a chair up for your mom, set it down, told her to sit in the chair. And I think he said he was going to go to the... No, maybe she went to the bathroom. And when she came out, there was a chair and he was gone. That might have been how it happened. And so she called us because it was before mobile phones were everywhere and we were the only ones she knew would be at a phone. And so we came from Zilla to pick her up and which is two hours. And he was gone. I mean, we thought when we got there that he would have come back, whatever tangent he went on. But and he was gone for a full week. He just drove straight out from Van from Sprague, just through the desert, through the... He tore out the, uh, the underside of the trailer. When, when he got back, everything underneath the trailer was ripped out. Whose trailer was it? Yours. It was your family's. And he, he just, he likened it to Christ going out in the desert for 40 days. And, uh, I mean, when he came back, he didn't, he didn't have food. He didn't have drink. He, he didn't, you know, the, it was the end of the camping trip. You guys, we were coming home, so he didn't have supplies. And he just took off into the desert. And, and I want to say it was over five days. And um, when he came back, he did come back. But it was off. I mean, the, the trailer was not even usable. It was done. It was. It was done. Um, During those five days, what happened? Yeah, he, he didn't have a lot to tell us. Okay. And, and how did you guys handle it? Him being disappearing for five days. Your mom was when we got to the rest area. Your mom was just sitting in her chair, singing worship songs, and she just had chose to worship God and not get all amped up and and you know and that's what we tried to do the whole time God what what should we do next show us what you want us to do and I don't remember I don't think we filed a missing persons maybe we did I don't remember having any interview with the police he might have even called maybe and let us know you know what? I think he did. I think he did call. I re- I vaguely remember something like that. Yeah, I think he did call and let your mom know that he was okay and that he he needed to, yes, okay, he needed to find God. And he was going to go out into the desert like Christ and find God in the desert. That's, That's the way I remember it, yeah. This is my Aunt Jill Schlinker. She didn't attend church with us in Zilla. She and her husband attended church in Toppenish, across the river. But she did live in Zilla, right in the middle of it. When Corinne died, your dad was never the same. I'd not seen anything bother your dad that much, even though it was an accident. He felt horrible. He felt horrible. And... And I honestly feel like he carried you. If you didn't know, you would have thought he did it, not Skyler. Because I know Skyler, I don't know how Skyler dealt with things. I know that state patrolman that was in his face right away saying that it's not your fault. Whether that helped, whether it was the Lord, both of them, you know. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Skyler does have his days where things bother him. Or he just seemed to go, he seemed to have dealt with it very well. But I always felt like your dad 
didn't. And I, and I have his, I had, I don't know if I still do, had one of his sermons that he talked about it when he, when he drove up the driveway and saw that white sheet and he heard someone screaming and realized it was him. He didn't even realize he was screaming. I feel like I'm just among family here this morning. Uh, turn with me, would you please, to the 23rd Psalm. I have a little formula for us. And the formula runs like this. Biblical truth plus life's experience equals reality. You can get into the Bible and you can read all about it and somehow... Uh, it, it makes it a certain amount into our mind and, and some degree it speaks into our spirit. But when you take the Word of God and you experience life and you use the Word of God as a filter for that, then you come up with true reality. And, on the other hand, if you just experience life without the filter of the Word of God, you still don't get reality. It takes the two together to really understand why things happen, what it's all about. Biblical truth plus life's experience equals reality. Uh, last October, uh, our family experienced a reality that was almost too real. You ever have those experiences where life just gets so real that you're not sure you can take it. Um, last October 26th, my son was at uh, my in-law's house, and he loaded up a couple of the grandchildren into a big van that we owned, and he buckled them in and surveyed the parking lot to be sure all was clear and he backed around and was going to come over to our house to home there was one little girl that he left behind and she felt left behind and uh, she went out to be with her sister who was in that van and as my son put that uh, van in drive and pulled forward, she ran up to the van, just learning to walk. She ran up to the van, fell under the tire, and the van drove over her, and Jesus took her home. I was on the phone at the time with uh, Doug Sherman, as a matter of fact, so there was a lady that had, uh, we were in an extended conversation, which we always have, and a lady came to the church, so there's been a tragedy uh, at the farm, you need to come right away. And, and I knew there's one of those situations where I was driving and praying, but I knew that it was too late to pray. You ever have that sensation that 
just too late to pray. And as I drove up that hill, there are certain images that are burned into my brain forever of the sheriff cars and state patrol cars, lights flashing, ambulance. And a little package laying on the ground with a sheet over it. And there's a, a pain that comes that is so exquisite and so um, precise because it's your greatest fear that you would be in the presence of the death of a little baby. And if you wanted to hurt me worse, you couldn't have done anything. And you turn to the word for comfort in those times. And this is a common passage of scripture that we use to draw comfort from. And God began to show things to me as I combined biblical truth plus the experiences of life. I remember one of the pictures that I have driving up that driveway with all the lights and the people and there was a, a blockage that I, I couldn't, I, I, uh, my brain refused to acknowledge what was really happening. And my in-laws were standing there, and I said, is she going to be okay? And my mother-in-law said, she's gone. And there was a welling up within me, just involuntary. There was something that came from my toenails, and I screamed, just involuntarily, I just screamed, No! And something broke. And there's something in the human heart that wants comfort so bad at that point. I, I mean, it'll do anything for comfort. It, it starts looking for comfort. Where's the comfort? This is too real. And uh, my, my brain started thinking, why? Why? And then, what if? What if? What if? And there was no comfort in any of that. And that was the initial response of my own soul. Because to scream no was an act of will, as if by some pronunciation of that word with, with that kind of intensity, by some force of will, you could turn the situation. And you can't. And so your will fails, so your brain tries something. What if? And you start reasoning. And try to back it up. Rewind the tape. There's no comfort in that. And your emotions kick in. Why? 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 And after I went through all that, I heard the voice of the Lord say, Bill, you're standing at the wrong tree. 
see in the garden there were two trees. One was the knowledge of good and evil, and one was the tree of life. And to stand at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, why, why, what if, no, standing at the wrong tree. And the only comfort I could find was to come over to the tree of life. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And I kept hearing this command, just worship me. Man, your soul, that is repulsive at that point in time. I'm just being real. That is the last thing on earth you want to do. where you face your greatest fear. It's real. You begin to mark days in terms of the worst day of your life, the second worst day of your life, the third worst day of your life. We buried that little girl on Leslie and I's anniversary. Please hear me. I'm not trying to play on your emotions. I'm just talking about the reality of life. I would never do it. If, if you know me at all, I try to stay away from emotions as much as I can. There were some images I had to replace in my mind in order to keep my sanity. I thought I was going to go crazy. One of them was right after the funeral, I was on a drive, and I just got to notice them beside the road in our area. It's become popular to take a couple of pieces of laugh and make a cross and stick it by the road where someone has died in an auto accident. You notice those things around here? And they look so forlorn and so pitiful. And every time I saw one of those, that picture of that little girl came back. And a mommy and a daddy with their arms around their dead baby. And I was going crazy. The other one was uh, right at Christmas time. My wife and I were shopping in a Hallmark shop, and they have these little figurines of angels on clouds, you know, and they look incredibly like this little angelic girl. And Leslie and I are standing there looking at these things, and we're just in a puddle. I mean, the lady's trying to wait on us, and we're just bawling and snotting. And, and it made a picture, and I had to replace it. And that, it was just a few weeks ago. I was in the morning, and I was seeking the Lord, and, and I, I got a picture of this little baby. And she was in heaven, and she was surrounded by hundreds of babies, just hundreds of them, and they were all asking her questions. What was it like to be born? What was it like to be wanted by mom and dad? What was your mom like? Because these little babies had never got to taste life. They weren't, they weren't wanted. 
and it was so comforting to me. I don't know about the accuracy, that's real subjective stuff, but it comforted me, and it replaced the picture. And it, 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 she was doing something of worth and value. And I like that. And maybe Jesus will adjust my theology a little bit, but until then, would you let me just keep my sanity with that picture? Well, God wants you and your heart irrevocably bound to his. Some of you maybe have yet to face your greatest fear. I wouldn't worry about that. God can arrange that at the right place and right time. His economy. Don't ask him for it, okay? But some of you maybe have faced your greatest fear and you're still standing at the wrong tree. You're still saying, why? Why? What if? Screaming, no, the God of heaven. You haven't crossed over. You've missed what he's after. We just stand together. The racket you heard and the feedback that you hear on that specific recording, um, it, it was because of the standing ovation. The sermon's title was Psalms 23 Made Real. The complete sermon I'll make available on this podcast at some point. All right, here's my mom again. Gorge, I guess not the. I don't think of it as the gorge there. Well, he went to Vantage once, but he also went to like Goldendale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He he didn't tell me he was going to do it, and he just he loved bicycling, and so he went over. Trenton was. Um, I don't know why he did that. He borrowed Trenton's bicycle, but it might have been something about a tire or something like that. Asked Trenton to borrow his bicycle. Trenton was painting Hulusik's shop, shed shop thing for a summer job. So Trenton said, sure, you know, so he took off. And we didn't know where he was then as time went on. And so I didn't know where he was. I can't remember if I let some of the guys know or not, because by this time I was pretty concerned for him. So he called me from a payphone and said he was doing okay and just didn't want me to worry and that kind of thing. And I asked him where he was and he gave me a mile marker number and I recall Randy knows all that stuff. He's like a, I don't know why it's so interesting to him, maybe because he trucks. But um, Randy said, 
told me where that was, and it was not where he was. So he lied to me on the phone about where he was. And then he called me another time, and he wanted me to come and pick him up. And it was at the Vernita Bridge, or Vantage Bridge, which is it there, the Vernita, is the smaller one that you would go all along that windy road through the, and jump out there. And that's where he had gotten to right before he was going to cross over the Columbia. And Um, and then Randy and Matt, I called them, and they went. And, well, we asked him to stay by the phone, you know, and I think they called him back on the payphone and asked him, you know, where he was and everything. And he said, there at that rest stop. So they went and got him and brought him back. All right. And how did he seem when he got back that night? Um, he seemed embarrassed, and I would just say he seemed embarrassed that he hadn't communicated better and that kind of thing. And so I was feeling really out of, what What do I make out of this, you know? It was discouraging to me. And you guys went to bed that night uh, together. Yes. Yeah. It was hot. Yes, it was real hot. Yeah. What did he say to you? He he asked my forgiveness for not communicating and and we went to sleep. And I and I forgave him, you know, and I said, "Let's talk." And he said, "Okay, we'll talk in the morning." I said, I, I need to know where you're at and what's going on with you and so I can support you and to understand what's going on with you. And he said, okay, well, well, I'll meet you in the morning. And that's the last I talked to him. He called from Vantage that evening, and it had been hot hot and he'd been riding his bike all day I don't even know how many miles away that is 30 40 and uh, so so he rode from Zilla to Vantage to Vantage and called from a house there um, and Matt and Randy went we knew he had a bike we knew that he had your mom knew that he had taken his bike so they went and picked him up. And he'd done a few bike rides before where mm-hmm. he just like wound up in the middle of nowhere. I know that on one occasion, I believe he made it all the way to the, like the gorge. He, he went for long bike rides. And he went up over past Goldendale. Like. Yeah, yeah. He, he just, it was unbelievable. And it was hot. I mean, it was, and he wouldn't eat. He wouldn't drink. You know, he, he, he was manic. He wasn't thinking. At this point, I should explain the farm. The farm sits on top of a ridge. Zilla is really up on a bluff, looks over the Yakima River. And the bluff peters off in sloping ridges kind of on the backside of town. 
the front side of town, there's a dirt cliff that towers over the freeway. But in the back of town, it peters out and slopes down. And there's a little spur of a ridge out by the canal that encompasses a, a gradual grade and rolling hills as you head out into uh, the north of town. The Germans moved from Seattle and purchased the Pugsley place and another farm and fused them together into German farms. It had apples, it had prunes, it had peaches of two different varieties, and most importantly, it had cherries. The part of the ridge that slopes down was on the German farm, and they built a house that looked out over the Cascade Range. And the Cascade Range is beautiful. From the upstairs living room, there are two large windows that looked out right at Mount Adams. Atop the hill, you could also look down on Rosa, which turned into one of the main thoroughfares in Zilla. And across the street lived Mike and Karan Hansis, and next door to them lived the Efflers. My grandfather bought this farm, and then up in a corner, he built his very own dental office. There's a long hill, a grade, from that main thoroughfare, Rosa, up to Grandma and Grandpa's farm. There's a garage, a large garage, a hay barn, a very large hay barn, a group of stalls that just hold old buggies that my grandparents collected, horse-drawn buggies. After my grandparents died, they divided the property between the children. And my aunt and uncle, Matt and Lisa, took my grandparents' old house that looked out over the valley. And right next to them, there was a piece of property that was divided out and given to Ruth and Larry. Now, I lived on the other side of the orchard. So where Grandma and Grandpa built their house looking out over the valley, back on the backside over by the canal was an old, run-down, classic, two-story, add-on-to-an-add-on farmhouse, the old Pugsley Place. And you can actually drive by it today. All right, um, let's go back to Ruth and Larry on the porch. Or at least get more done. Well, I'll have to see how quick the floor dries. Probably need to run up and get some more tiles. So if it does, I can get, finish that off. Because until I get the tiles down, then we can't stuff. You put, can't put the furniture in. Right. Okay. Well, right. I would that, prefer to have the tiles. Yeah, when you get dinner. to that point, let me know, and I'll give you a hand with the cabinets. Okay. Can I come at six for dinner? I, I can't answer that. She's already talked to Peggy, I think. Oh yeah. Just. Get her on the phone. Here, get her on the phone, and we'll talk. Yeah. No, I think it's no, all. Just Peggy was supposed to plan this, so. Oh, is she? Yeah. So just go. Your on. mom shows up at our door and said she found Bill dead in the in the orchard. I was getting dressed, called the sheriff. She went over and, and talked to Matt and, and Lisa, and then we went out out to the site with with the sheriff. First sheriff that showed up. He 
had a second one showed up pretty quick anyway they were looking over the site all of them they both of them said the only i mean he wasn't dirty he wasn't i mean it was just like he laid down and kind of went to sleep didn't have his glasses but your mom said she picked him up because she was always picking him up she didn't know why but she just did so they all said that any movement on the ground was just basically the death throes like at the heel then the coroner came and all that stuff and then the next time i saw your mom she came out of the funeral home and said that your dad had died of a grand mal seizure um, which i'd never heard of in preparation to the funeral we were cleaning up over at the house and i noticed in the burn barrel there were four boxes of rat poisoning that they're empty boxes new boxes i saw that and i thought hmm that's strange My father, uh, when I was a young boy, he, uh, he ran a produce truck out of Oklahoma City, and I took a ride with him one time. And we left Oklahoma City around noon, and getting on towards evening, we crossed the Kansas-Oklahoma border. And if you know anything about that area of the country, you need to look on a map. It is a long ways between towns in that area. And we were driving along, and all of a sudden, the truck absolutely came to a stop, just like somebody shut the switch off and he coasted off the side of the road and there we sat. He didn't know what was wrong and I didn't know what was wrong and I was nervous and he wasn't real happy and opened up the hood and turned it over and there was no spark and took the distributor cap off and this little, this little plastic thing with a metal part on it that spins around and around inside the distributor had broken off. And there was no way possible that I could see to fix that Hummer. But um, he went back in the back of the, the truck there and he got out a toolbox and he got a pair of pliers. And he walked over to a barbed wire fence that was close by that somebody had done a repair job and there was some leftover uh, wire in that thing. And he took some of that wire and he took those pliers and he, he broke off two lengths of that wire. And he came back and he hooked up uh, one length of that wire to the negative terminal on the battery. And he, took, he hooked up the, the other length of it to the positive terminal on the battery. And, and he held that little part that had broken off. He held it right up there where it was supposed to be. And he, he arced, just touched and arced uh, right there where it was broken on that metal part and spot welded it. And he put it all back together, and we got in the truck, and we drove home. And he didn't even stop at the next town and pick up the little broken part. He put that Hummer together. I was amazed. My esteem for my father went, man, he solved an incredible problem. 
You didn't even know that, did you? No, but he kicked me a <laughs>